Let's turn over to Matthew chapter number 9 this evening. Matthew chapter number 9. And we'll be looking at verses 14 through 17. Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 17. And we'll be dealing with a subject or the subject of the bridegroom, uh, but also dealing with a number of different uh, aspects of uh, not only the bridegroom, but also dealing with the aspect of fasting. And so we're looking here at verses 14 through 17. It says there, Then came to him the disciples of John, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast oft, but thy disciples fast not? And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then shall they fast. No man putteth a piece of new cloth unto an old garment, for that which is put in to fill it up taketh from the garment, and the rent is made worse. Neither do men put new wine into old bottles, else the bottles break, and the wine runneth out, and the bottles perish. But they put new wine into new bottles, and both are preserved. In this text this evening, we see one of the numerous occasions uh, where an objection or a series of objections is being made towards either Jesus himself or towards his disciples. Uh, these objections come throughout the Gospels. We see it a number of different times. And, but most cases, these objections made by the Pharisees or others towards Jesus or his disciples give us some of the most instruction and some of the most profit uh, that we could possibly consider. Uh, we look at them and we think, these are objections. What can we learn from an objection? And in reality, some of the greatest lessons Jesus taught were as a result of someone objecting to something he was doing or something he was teaching, or how some of his disciples were or were not doing some activity. So these are great uh, portions of truth. Uh, these are portions of truth that uh, even as we think about opposition and we think about objections, uh, we realize that Jesus as the master teacher and have all the wisdom of God uses these opportunities to bring the negativity of an objection uh, into the positivity of being able to teach a deep great spiritual truth. Now this is, by my count, at least the third instance in this chapter of an objection uh, being raised. Uh, this particular objection, uh, we've, or this particular chapter, we've seen Jesus give a uh, discourse on his power to forgive sin, how he has the power to heal, the power to forgive sin, how he is ready to receive the sinner, uh, and how uh, he's ready to, uh, to, to, to bring them unto himself. And yet, each one of those occasions, something happened where an objection was being raised by a Pharisee or a scribe questioning what Jesus was doing. 
so here, uh, this is a direct objection that is being made towards the conduct of his disciples. Uh, it's not first and foremost directed at him. Uh, however, uh, there is a reference made to his disciples and why they are not doing uh, what these other individuals are. Now, what makes this particular objection interesting, uh, even more interesting, is that the objection is being raised from the disciples of John. Uh, this is coming really from a, a unexpected source on the surface. But if you really think about what was happening in those days and you think about what was happening with, the, uh, with John, remember John, John himself, most likely John the Baptist, had developed his own uh, grand following of people, not really because he was seeking to do it, but he so came into the world that they began to believe that he was the Messiah himself. And as he came in and he begins to preach and to teach, he gained a following of people who are referred to uh, as his disciples. Um, so you see that it is they who come to him or come to Jesus there in verse 14. They come to him and they ask him a question. Why do we and the Pharisees fast oft, but thy disciples fast not? Notice the wording is interesting here. Because the disciples of John are claiming, Jesus, your disciples don't do this, but we, as the disciples of John, we do. Why are your disciples not fasting? So we see that this, this following of these disciples of John the Baptist, and again, they had, they had attached themselves to him. And so uh, they realize that, and even at this moment, most of the commentators believe at this point in time that, uh, that, that John uh, was most likely already in prison by this point, but yet they were still following him. They were still uh, wanting to uh, be his disciples, of course. Uh, and, and yet uh, they were still attached to John knowing that the Messiah had come. And yet here they were interested in imitating John's observances. Now, we read last week about the meal or the feast that Matthew had at his home. Uh, this possibly could have been the catalyst as to what led this question to come up as to the regard of why are we fasting at this moment and your disciples are not fasting. And that's one possibility as to why this has arisen at this particular time. Uh, these uh, disciples were either offended uh, by it themselves, or they may have been instructed by the Pharisees to kind of raise the question, uh, because you know the Pharisees wanted to sow discord between Jesus' disciples, no doubt. Uh, but there was probably a part of them that wanted to dis they wanted to sow discord even with the disciples of John. So you've really got a couple of different situations that are coming together here. Uh, so the the Pharisees, and at least at this moment, John's disciples were in agreement about the necessity of fasting. Now, you'll notice that their question is not directed as to why are we fasting? They wanted to know why Christ's disciples were not. In other words, they were not saying, here's the reason why we fast, here's the reason why the Pharisees fast. Their question centered on why are you not doing what we're doing? 
That's really what the context, what's happening here. Uh, this was not being said or questioned as a means of trying to get an uh, inquiry or try to get a solid answer. Uh, the sense is, is that they were doing this as a means of reproof. In other words, John's disciples were saying this is in, almost in a way as, uh, how dare you not participate the way that we're doing this? Uh, we, are, we are fasting. Uh, we are doing these things, and you're not. Uh, their sense is, is that if you're a disciple, if you're, you are the disciples of Christ, uh, certainly you ought to be fasting. Uh, you ought to be doing as we are doing, as the Pharisees are doing, and not eating and drinking and feasting in the manner that you are. That's really where the connection with the feast that Jesus was in attendance at with Matthew at his house after he was called. That seems to be the sense of what's really happening here. <clears throat> now, we're not going to delve real deep into uh, personal fasting or the application of the believer and how the believer is to participate in fasting, but we do need to get some background as to uh, why these fastings were so important. Uh, fastings here that they're talking about are not referring to the public fasting that was required and was participated in uh, with regard to the law of Moses. Uh, these, are, these are not related fasts to the Old Testament teachings. This reference is to private fasts, to private things where private fasting where uh, John and his disciples, uh, possibly by the Pharisees, uh, we're, we're doing instructed according to the traditions of the elders, or they were fasts that were being appointed. Uh, these, were, these were not the uh, quote-unquote required fasting by uh, the law of Moses. However, we do know that these fasts took place very often. Now, historically and traditionally, uh, the Pharisees were known to fast at least twice a week. And those two days of the week, just for our interest tonight, those two days of the week were on a Monday and on Thursday. They were known to fast twice a week on those days, pretty much uh, irrespective of anything else that was happening, which helps us understand Luke 18 a little bit better. If you want to turn over there, there's a mention, the, one of the Pharisees makes mention of this I fast twice a week. He's referring to those fasts that were very often those being done on Mondays and Thursdays. So Luke 18, verse 9, And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves. Now, I want you to remember that. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee, the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for every one that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. So even in this parable that Jesus taught about the Pharisee and the publican, the Pharisee made it well known, I fast twice a week. 
And he's, he's talking about those Monday and Thursday fast, but they had fasting and private fast on just about any occasion you could think of. Uh, as a matter of fact, it is uh, by, by Jewish tradition, fasts were kept uh, for many different purposes. Uh, they, they would fast for the presence of some type of evil. They would fast during a, a time of pestilence or an invasion by insects. They would fast during a time of famine. They would fast during a time of war. If there was a calamity, they would fast during that. But sometimes they would also fast for things we might seem that we may say, and I think would probably agree, uh, were probably insignificant small things. Jewish tradition says that they would even fast about dreams. And they would fast for their dreams to be good dreams, that they wouldn't have bad dreams, or that they would fast in order that they could interpret their own dreams, or they would fast in order uh, that something bad would come uh, so that something bad would not come out of these dreams. They began to put traditions on everything and said, you need to fast. You need to fast as a result of these things that are happening. Uh, it's, it's pretty amazing if you really dig into this. It's almost uh, uh, incredible to think and to consider how frequently these Pharisees were fasting. Now remember, most of them were not doing this because they were doing it with some sense of holiness. They were doing it to be seen of men. They were doing it to be recognized as holy people. Uh, so there was a problem even with that. So Jesus here in this particular text and, and back in Matthew 9 and the question when Jesus answers them, uh, Jesus is answering uh, not just a once in a while fast. Uh, this, was, this was within that society was well known. And he answers their question as much as many as great of master teachers he was. He answers their questions with his own question. And he's giving a great insight as to uh, really uh, the purpose of fasting, but even more importantly, uh, who, who he is. He understands why this is happening. He understands that this is not with an intent to get an honest answer from him. This is with an intent to question and to sow discord. It would have pleased the Pharisees beyond belief to have the disciples of John in complete disarray and in complete disagreement with the disciples of Christ. So to think that the Pharisees were not somehow behind this, were not somehow maneuvering, trying to convince them to go and ask Jesus about his disciples. Remember, when John, John is imprisoned, uh, just like they would do when Jesus was imprisoned, his disciples did not know what to do. Their, their, their teacher, their leader had been imprisoned. And, and some have even, have even suggested that by this point, again, I'm not going to be dogmatic on this, by this point, it's, it's more than possible uh, that John may have already been beheaded by this point. But we're not going to get too deep into that. So that these disciples of John are at some sort of impasse with the disciples of Christ. Luke, in his account of this, represents this question as being put by the Pharisees. 
which is here put by the disciples of John. So that's kind of what gives us a little bit of insight that of how this may have arrived. If you want to, if you want to turn over to Luke chapter 5 and look down at, um, look at verse 33, just, just to give us context here. And they said unto him, why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers? And likewise, the disciples of the Pharisees, but thine eat and drink. So notice there's a reference there to the disciples of the Pharisees. So uh, there is this, uh, this, this direction here that the Pharisees were somehow behind uh, this attempt to sow discord. So let's look now at what Jesus responds with with this question. Now Jesus says unto them in verse 15 of Matthew 9, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn? as long as the bridegroom is with them. So now Jesus is speaking to the disciples of John. And the Pharisees, no doubt, are present. They're somewhere near. And here Jesus gives this answer that is so full and is so complete and is so instructive. It's instructive when we understand who he's talking about and we understand what he's talking about. Notice he says, can the children of the bride chamber mourn? Now, he makes reference to a bride chamber before he makes reference to a bridegroom. But in the same question, he mentions a bride chamber and he mentions a bridegroom. Now, let's take this kind of in reverse order. The bridegroom, of course, Jesus is referring to himself. He is, in fact, the bridegroom. He stands as the bridegroom in relation to his people, in relation to the church, in relation to all believers, who we know that from the eternity past, all of his people were betrothed unto him from all of eternity, based upon that covenant of grace. We know that we, those that are his are effectually called by the gospel, and they are brought unto him. He's making reference to people uh, who he is the bridegroom to. Now remember, the master of the disciples or the leader of the disciples of John who puts forth the question had at some point had acknowledged that Jesus himself was in fact this bridegroom. Uh, if you look over at John chapter 3 and look at verse 25. John 3, 25. And notice the, notice the wording here. It says, then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy therefore is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. 
He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. And what he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth, and no man receiveth his testimony. He that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him, the Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things into his hand. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not on the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. So there, there is this already acknowledgement that Jesus would be acknowledged to have been the bridegroom and would have been acknowledged to have been the Messiah. And these disciples of John, uh, Jesus is really pulling the net here. He's really using this to demonstrate to them that you should already know this. You should already be aware of what, what I'm talking to you about. In other words, these disciples of John are not just hearing this for the first time. They're not just hearing him use the terms bridegroom and bride chamber. Even John had used this terminology to describe Jesus himself. So who are these children of the bride chamber? Well, these children of the bride chamber are, in fact, the disciples. Uh, they are the ones referred to as the friends of the bridegroom. So John also says that he rejoiced at hearing his voice, as we just read in John 3, and that they ought to do the same. You ought to rejoice at the voice of the bridegroom. That's the presence of Christ, the bridegroom, with them. Uh, this is not a time, and this is what Jesus is leading to, the presence of Christ with you is not a time of mourning. This is a time of joy that he's with you. And his presence is there. Now, Jesus is giving an allusion here to a marriage ceremony. Of course, we would all understand that. The bridegroom and the bride chamber, uh, the bride, there is this illustration of a marriage ceremony. Now, most marriage ceremonies are meant to be a time of joy and a time of feasting, not a time of mourning and a time of fasting. And that's really what Jesus is directing at. He's, he's saying, why would my disciples be mourning and fasting now when they have the joy of the bridegroom with him and with them? This is not a time to be in mourning. Uh, the, the marriage ceremony, the nuptials that are exchanged there, uh, this is a time when both the bride and the bridegroom have those friends and acquaintances attending. Now, Jesus is giving some insight and some prophecy here. As he, says, as he says this, he says, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come. Now, notice what he says. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then shall they fast. Now, make it very clear, Jesus is not declaring war against fasting. And he's not saying that there's never going to be a time for my disciples to fast. But what he is saying is that time is not now. Because the bridegroom is with his disciples. Now remember, what got us here? The disciples of John want to know, why aren't you fasting and mourning? And Jesus is saying, my, my friends are not doing this because I'm still here. Now, this is not that time, but there is coming a time when he will. Now, of course, we know that the time of Christ being with his disciples 
It begins with his entrance into what we refer to as public ministry, right? And then to his death. It's in that time that Jesus is referring to. He says, between now and that time when the, when the day will come, that is the time when my disciples should be joying and feasting, not sorrowing and fasting. It's as direct as we can possibly get this to be. This, this time period, again, try to put yourself back then, this time period between the time of Jesus' public ministry and the time when he would actually go to the cross is, was meant to be a time of rejoicing for his disciples. Uh, there was no occasion for them to fast. There was no occasion for them to mourn. Uh, even the Jews themselves had made this statement that all fast shall cease in the days of the Messiah. And there shall be no more but good days, the days of joy and rejoicing. Even the Jews were taught and knew that the day Messiah arrives, you should no longer be mourning and fasting and be sorrowful. What does that tell us about the Pharisees? It shows us their full, utter rejection of the Messiah. Because if you knew the Messiah, you would not be fasting all this. You would not be mourning. You would be rejoicing and feasting because the Messiah has come. Remember, everything we look at, like we've talked about on Sundays, dealing with Hebrews, you've got to keep in mind what was going on and what was already known. And these things were known. But Jesus does say this time will come when the bridegrooms will be taken away from them. Of course, we know, and Jesus is not giving all the details here. You and I are reading it and we're looking back and we realize that this would be the time he's referring to as a time when he would be put to death on the cross. And then he clearly says, then shall they fast. It would be a time of mourning. And we do know from reading our Bibles, we know that it becomes a time of great mourning. It becomes a time of great distress. Jesus' disciples did not know what to do with themselves when Jesus was taken and put upon that cross. That's why they scattered. They had no idea what to do. So Jesus is very clearly saying, here's this time when that morning will come. Now, if it is in fact John the Baptist at this time was in fact in prison or he had already died, in effect, there would be a case for them mourning the death of John the Baptist. But Jesus, remember, they're saying, why are your disciples not doing what we're doing? Okay, the question is not, here's why we're doing it. The question from the disciples of John to Christ's disciples are, why aren't you? Jesus responds by saying, why would they? There's no reason for my disciples to mourn yet. And then Jesus immediately goes in into another illustration. Now notice there's no other questions being asked by the disciples of John. The Pharisees don't ask another question. This is still another answer to the question that he asked. Why do we and the Pharisees fast off, but the disciples fast not? This is one running response. Jesus now enters into another illustration. And he says... No man putteth a piece of new cloth unto an old garment, for that which is put in to fill it up taketh from the garment, and the rent is made worse. Now, Jesus is still the bridegroom. 
he adds something else to this concept that is of great importance. Jesus now introduces a complete change in the order of things. And that's the easiest way I can put this. He's referring to patching an old garment with a new piece of cloth. Or, in effect, filling up a garment from something new and trying to restore the old. And he gives a very clear illustration that says, if you try to do that, if you try to cover up the tear, you try to cover up the hole, you make the tear or the rent, the rent, King James wise, it's just, it means that tear, it means that hole. It makes it worse. Now, what in the world is he talking about? He jumps into another illustration that's related to that. And he talks about, and we're going to go back and fill in the blanks here. He says, neither do men put new wine into old bottles, else the bottles break and the new runneth out and the bottles perish. But they put new wine into new bottles and both are preserved. Still has the principles of new and old. Still has the principle of trying to put something new into something old. Again, what in the world does this have to do with the bridegroom? Well, if you do not put this new wine into old skins, okay? The, the way that these, these wine bottles were made is they were made out of animal skins. And these skins, uh, as they would get old, when the wine was poured into them, there was the fermenting process that took place in there. Those old skins would at some point, they would burst. They would be destroyed. But when he talks about putting new wine into new skins, which we'll finish with this later on, he talks about them being preserved. So the new on the old or the new in the old results in destruction, but the new wine into the new bottles or into the new skins is preserved. The old garment that's being referred to here is what well, some of what we're talking about on Sunday mornings. The old garment Remember who Jesus is talking to. The Pharisees are right there. This is not just the disciples standing there of John. They're hearing all this. This old garment is a reference to Judaism with all of the legal righteousness that the Pharisees required. This illustration is rising and falling on the Pharisees' idea of their own righteousness. They believed that fasting was part of their own righteousness. He's using the Pharisees' own traditions and their own teachings against them. This old garment he refers to is, he's, he's all but calling the old garment worthless. He's, he's saying that you cannot patch the old garment, the old Judaistic legal righteousness, you cannot patch it with something new and make it valuable. A new garment, remember, Jesus is changing the order of things. Jesus is talking about a new garment. He's talking about a better righteousness was about to be given. We know that even scripturally, this, this, this better righteousness that would come, uh, would come from he whose name is Jehovah, our righteousness. The old is gone. It's, it's no longer in existence in the way that it was. 
But Jesus is teaching this idea that it's impossible to patch up the old garment of Judaism with the new garment of righteousness which Jesus Christ is, is bringing and expect that to bring something of value. You can't patch the old with something new and expect it to produce something valuable. It's an idea or the principle of trying to mix the law and grace together, which we know is impossible. You cannot take the law of self-righteousness by the Pharisees and try to take that and patch it with grace and produce something valuable. This old garment not only referred to those concepts of fasting, but remember, they were also known for their many various other traditions of the elders, which had respect to what they ate, what they drank, how they spoke with each other, uh, their observances that were all meant to show or demonstrate some sort of moral perfectness. Their, their performances were meant to show we can be morally perfect, we can keep the law, and we can have our own self-righteousness. Back in that example in Luke, that Pharisee was all but saying, I am dependent upon my own righteousness. The publican was responding differently, saying, God, be merciful to me, to me, be merciful to me a sinner, and smoting himself, because he knew I cannot bring any righteousness. See, the Pharisees were fully convinced of their own standard of righteousness. If the, if the Jews could have had it their way in some fashion, they would have had a form of Judaism with a sprinkle of Christianity in it. In other words, they would have wanted to say this Judaism that we have, yes, we can take a sprinkle of grace, but... Primarily, it's our own righteousness that's guaranteeing our standing. Judaism attempts to keep the law and tries to foster a legal righteousness before God. God considers that a great abomination unto himself. It's a great offense to God for an individual or a group of individuals to say, we can produce some sort of legal righteousness that would stand before a holy God. The old garment referred to many things that they did. The Pharisees looked upon themselves as very righteous people, and they looked at all other people as sinners. Hence, go back to the story of the Pharisee and the publican. He was not looking at him with any sort of goodwill. That Pharisee was looking at him saying, now I'm the picture of righteousness. That is just a disgusting, vile sinner over there. I'm glad I'm not him. And all that that Pharisee was resting on was his own self-righteousness, which Jesus is very clearly saying, that old garment is worthless. The old garment is that moral and legal righteousness by their false thinking that they could obey the moral and the ceremonial laws, which in and of itself was imperfect. It was impure. It's the filthy rags we read about in Isaiah. Those filthy rags are the idea that you can obey and produce moral perfection or that you can produce that which is valuable. 
The old garment is something that's worn out. It's filthy. It's torn. It's full of holes. It's something that is unmendable. You can't mend the old garment. You can't make it new by putting a new patch on it. You can't make the righteousness of Judaism, the self-righteousness of Judaism, you cannot make it valuable by putting on the patch of grace. Jesus is saying this is a new order of things. I didn't come here to patch up your righteousness. I didn't come here to patch up your self-exaltation. I came to announce that there is only one way of righteousness. That piece of cloth that's being mentioned in verse Again, the piece of cloth that's being mentioned there, uh, it's something that was intended to be sewn into to join it to the observance of their own traditions to somehow make up a justifying righteousness before God. Jesus is saying this is entirely in vain and it has no purpose. He says, for that which is put to fill it up, take it from the garment and the rent is made worse. This new obedience to the traditions of men would make the law of God void. Instead of mending it, it would mar their righteousness. It would make it even worse. And it left them in a worse condition. That's what the, it would be rent worse. It would make their condition worse than it already is if you tried to mend this with a new piece of cloth. It's really kind of a deep, it's a deep well that Jesus is dealing with, but he's dealing with it in a way that these Pharisees and these, of course, these disciples of John are hearing. It's said in Luke 5.36, the peace that was taken out of the new agreeeth not with the old. So you can't, you can't sew in the new with the old. It would, it'll, it, it, it'll make it worse. There is no more likeness between the observance of the commandments of man and the obedience of the laws of God. So it's a foolish, foolish individual who thinks under the gospel dispensation that they can join their righteousness to the righteousness of Christ in any way, shape, or form and present something of value. So any righteousness that I bring and I try to have it mend and mend it together with the righteousness of God, the righteousness of Christ, ultimately makes it worse. Right? It, it, it's worse than if you just tried to bring your own righteousness, is what he's saying. It's worse to try to bring the old and the new together and say, here's righteousness. Right? That's what it is. You're, you're, you're better off to stand in your own self-righteousness than to even attempt to put the new in with the old. See, Christ's righteousness is already a justifying righteousness. The new doesn't have anything added to it. It doesn't need any of our righteousness because it's of no value. It's already perfect. Christ's righteousness is a justifying righteousness. It's already whole. It's already perfect. It doesn't need anything added to it. It can't be torn. It is not justification by works, which is what the Pharisees believed. The old garment is the old garment of man's self-righteousness, and it needs to be thrown away. Instead of people who are self-righteous being justified, 
who exalt their own righteousness, they treat the righteousness of Christ by trying to mend the two together. They're treating the righteousness of Christ as something imperfect that needs something added to it. Does that make sense? That's, that's the concept. They're, they're, they're accusing by trying to add. He's telling them, and that's what you're doing. You're trying to add. You're claiming my righteousness is an imperfect righteousness. There's nothing more disagreeable to the righteousness of Christ than some sort of patch. <laughs> to say, I, can, I, I, I just need a patch. I just, I just need a, a piece of new cloth sewn in. Now remember, he's acknowledging that the people who are the children of the bride chamber, remember, why does this all matter? He's all but telling them those who stand on their own righteousness are not children of the bridegroom. Every one of these Pharisees who's trying to stand on their own righteousness is not one of his. Neither do these men put the new wine into the new bottles. As the, former, the, the, the previous parable says, the Lord is again exposing the folly of these scribes. He's telling them that there is this principle of self-righteousness. The old bottles, again, is a reference the same as the old garment was. The illusion is these bottles were made out of the skins of beasts, and over time, those skins would decay, they would get old, and they would become a point where you could no longer use those bottles. The scribes and the Pharisees are illustrated by the old garment and by the old bottles. Okay, it's the same, he's talking about the same thing. And the new wine is meant to be the righteousness of Christ, the grace of God, God's favor, that which is clean, that which is pure. It's compared to new wine, not because it's something that's, that's brand new, but that rather it is something that is now being newly manifested. It's something that's now being revealed. When Jesus came, Jesus was there to reveal not a brand new gospel and not a brand new religion. He's manifesting what already was. The gospel is being signified by the wine. It's being signified by what the new wine brings, not because it's a new doctrine, but because now it's being clearly revealed by Christ and his apostles and disciples. So notice what he says happens when you attempt to put new wine into old bottles. The bottles break and the wine runs out and the bottles perish. The love of God, the gospel of grace, the blessings of grace cannot be retained, cannot be kept in a self-righteous individual. So a person who thinks that their righteousness stands cannot retain the gospel of grace, nor can they retain the justifying righteousness of Christ. That's the illusion. That old bottle with new wine poured into it, that old self-righteous bottle, you put the new wine in it, that old bottle will burst. And the wine will run all over. Notice what it says, the bottles perish. That's important. The bottle is the, is the Pharisee, the self-righteous. The bottles perish, not the wine, the bottles do. 
but rather they put new wine into new bottles and both are preserved. Now we realize that even the Apostle Paul makes mention of new creatures in Christ. When we become converted, when we become one of His, we become a new creation. These new bottles are truly meant to be sinners. Those who Christ has called by His grace, the Spirit has regenerated them, has renewed them, they have been in fact made new creatures in Christ. What does Paul talk about? Paul talks about we have new hearts, we have new spirits, we have a new principle of life, we have new desires. It is those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. It's those that are in Christ. The new bottles represent the sinner who's been converted. Now the love of God is being shed and is being, uh, being revealed in their hearts. Those sinners who have truly been saved by the grace of God value His righteousness above everything else. If, you're, if you are saved by the grace of God and you are truly in Christ today, you value only Christ's righteousness alone, not any of your own righteousness. Now, there should be no part of you tonight that is, is even placing any value on the old you, the old, the old garment, the old bottle. It's all about the new. The Judaizers' idea of Christianity was the ability they believed, I can have a profession of grace while at the same time fostering and keeping my own righteousness by my obedience to the law. That's, that's what the Judaizers would truly, that's what they would truly want. Oh, okay, we'll, 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 we're going to foster our own legal righteousness. We're going we're to do everything that we can. Uh, that would be worse than what Israel did by worshiping idols to claim that you can somehow make a profession of Jesus Christ and then attempt or believe you can keep the law, the old and the new, trying to put them together. So what is it? The gospel and Judaism. The law and grace do not belong together. You try to infiltrate the gospel of grace and try to enclose it in a ceremonial Judaism, it will result in the loss of the wine from that bottle or from that skin. Remember this, that when we talk about who we are in Christ, it's not meant to be just the Gentile or just the Jew. It's not supposed to be a Jewish religion or a Gentile religion. It's supposed to be one that is in Christ. Reality, what Jesus is telling them over and over again, is Christ's answer is framed in such a way that he is justifying why his disciples are not doing what the disciples of John are doing. He realizes he's teaching them when there is coming a day when I will be taken. But until that day and until that hour, this is a time of rejoicing. This is a time of feasting. This is a time when we look and we rejoice in the presence of Christ. Their day would come when his disciples 
when the bridegroom would be taken from them, when they would be deprived from his bodily presence, Jesus says, then that's when you fast. But until then, my disciples are not fasting. They're not relying upon the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. They're rejoicing and not fasting because they have me. Why do you and I rejoice today? We rejoice today because we do have the presence of God. We do have the presence of Christ. Not in bodily form, but we have His Spirit. Who He said when He went away, He would send a comforter. He would never leave us alone. So I hope tonight we'll find that what Jesus was teaching here was by means to also encourage His disciples. Not to slight them. Not to reprimand them, but to instruct by a direct opposition. Jesus taught a deep truth about the righteousness, the self-righteousness, the Pharisee, who the bridegroom is, the bride chamber, who are friends of the bride, the bridegroom, why they fast, why they don't, what is self-righteousness, what is true righteousness. So I trust we'll get the same instruction this evening. Let's conclude our time by singing the hymn on page number 60.